Welcome to Authors in Conversation, the United States in the World series podcast from Cornell University Press. Hi there, I'm Emily Conroy Kretz. I'm one of the editors at US in the World at Cornell University Press. Today I'm being joined by Joseph Ho, an assistant professor in the history department at Albion College and the author of Developing Mission, Photography, Filmmaking, and American Missionaries in Modern China. Uh, in addition to this book, Josie, co-editor of War and Occupation in China, The Letters of an American Missionary from Hangzhou, 1937 to 1938. And so we're going to talk today about missions, about photography, about China and U.S.-China relations. And I am just so excited to hear you talk more about your work and about this wonderful book. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Uh, can we maybe get started if you want to tell us about how you got into the topic? Um, what brought you to the study of missionary photography? Yeah, so I was thinking about the intersections between uh, visual culture, Americans in China, um, international uh, encounters, uh, really as an outgrowth of research I was doing at the end of my undergraduate period uh, at UC San Diego. And it really was an encounter with uh, the descendants of American missionaries um, that I was able to really get into this world of thinking about missionaries uh, as modern individuals in China equipped with cameras, thinking about their experience, their encounters, uh, and also the ways in which modernity and images collided in the 20th century um, kind of as an outgrowth of a work I was doing on um, photographers in wartime China uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, so could you tell us a bit more about these pictures? Because I know, um, you know, I've worked in mission archives too. And, you know, I, one of the things I love about your book is that it's helped me to, to see those archives differently and think differently about those photographs that I sometimes flip through a little bit to you know, I say, oh, that's what that guy looks like. And then I can kind of move on. Um, but you have a really, um, I think because of your, um, your own background in photography and your real interest in the technology here, you help us to think about these um, really differently. So what kinds of photos are we talking about here? What were they being used for? Um, and how were they being created? It's a great question. So it's a wide range. And uh, when you typically think about this, uh, it, uh, experience of American missionaries um, taking photographs or producing films in China. Um, they range from the kinds of images that would be considered family images, uh, images especially in Protestant circles of children and your family members and loved ones, but also religious activity, the building of churches, communities that these missionaries are involved with um, in interwar China, the 20s, 30s, and uh, into the 40s, really. Uh, but they also start to branch out from there. We have images, uh, films, and photographs of the repercussions of war, of the Second Sino-Japanese War, the invasion of China, um, of regime change in the late 1940s as the People's Republic of China comes into being. Um, so these images really cross this spectrum of private and public and international and local imagery um, as they move through this historical time period. And they're incredibly diverse. Some of these are you know, gathered in archival collections, but some of these are, are still in personal hands, right? That's right. So a, a great number of images that I use uh, in this book and also the texts and contextual information that goes 
with them um, are held by families um, or even by uh, religious orders, uh, a wide, again, a, a wide range of sources. And this is something to be said about the nature of these images and these experiences. They pass through these multiple historical contexts. They move from private spaces to public spaces. Uh, and sometimes they end up with their afterlives in closets and attics and basements and garages of um, the descendants of missionary families. And that says something about how as these images move through time and through space, the imaginations about them also shift. And um, one of the goals of my book was to track how these developments happen and how image making processes and technologies and ways of thinking about images as experience have evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Great, and, and part of this is a story about um, modernity, right? And so you, you mentioned earlier, right, thinking about these missionary photographers as you know, a modern person with a camera. Um, and in the book, you use the phrase um, missionary modernity um, a bit, and I think visual modernity too. Can you sort of talk us through what you mean there by, by what does it mean to be a, a modern person with a camera um, as a missionary out in China. Yeah. So these missionaries, especially in the 20s and 30s and 40s, are thinking about themselves as modern individuals. And they're positing their work in relationship to earlier forms of mission that were more profoundly focused on uh, forms of uh, Christian imperialism, uh, as uh, Emily, you've written about, um, and also uh, kind of traditional forms of evangelism, where one's goal or primary goal is to go to a place and, and propagate religious ideas. Uh, the missionaries of this time period, the, one that, the ones I work on, are thinking more about themselves as citizens of a global community, that they are engaged in religious work um, uh, like their predecessors, but doing it with modern methods, uh, modern methods of communication, of uh, partnership with people on the ground in the communities that they're entering. And um, there's this excellent article that the Chinese Recorder, which is this uh, ecumenical mission magazine uh, that is published in Shanghai, um, uh, publishes uh, this article in 1929 that is entitled The Modern Significance of the Missionary. And it basically lays out this idea, this ideology, that missionaries are citizens of every country to which they go, as well as citizens of the countries from which they come. And this is meant to uh, really foreground ideas uh, that are carried out in Michael G. Thompson's book, Forgotten Globe, um, Christian internationalism, that this is a new way of thinking about international and transnational belonging that is expressed in things like modern technology, modern documentation, and working with partners, both in the state and in local communities um, that are thinking about uh, this condition in profoundly modern ways. Great, and so how does uh, film technology figure into that? Do we see them sort of develop uh, using different types of cameras over time or um, sort of ad adopting, um, sort of bringing with them uh, American technologies or are they adopting Chinese technologies? How does that all work out? Yeah, 
So certainly the cameras that are being brought to China or being purchased in China, um, there are uh, international commercial networks behind all of these things. You know, Eastman Kodak is huge. German imports of cameras and film technology are also big. Um, but what's happening with the technology is that American missionaries and also Chinese Christians and Chinese colleagues um, who may or may not be Christian are also adopting documentary forms of imaging that are based around smaller cameras, the ability to produce vernacular images um, using these compact, highly mobile, still uh, photographic technology, as well as moving picture technology. And this creates a visual culture in which these ideas about modernity, about Christian internationalism, and about seeing the world in a kind of cosmopolitan and also locally embedded light uh, come to the forefront. And who's looking at, so we, you talked a little bit before about how these are both you know, private and public sources that kind of move through different hands at different points. Is how are Americans at home receiving and experiencing these kinds of sources? Because it's, I think you're, you're in part of this sort of, um, the performance of, of this modernity and this Christian internationalism is about um, sort of what's happening in China and part of it's what's happening back in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So missionary images are circulating. They're moving um, between areas in China and the United States and also images of the United States are also going to China. And there's this wonderful example in the third chapter of my book where this one missionary family, the Hanke family, um, receive a movie camera, uh, a 16 millimeter Cinecodac um, Model B movie camera that is uh, the product of a Christmas 1930 collection that a congregation in Rye, New York um, puts together to purchase this camera for them. And the Hankies receive this camera in North China. They produce all of these films of their medical missionary activity of local communities and they're essentially experimenting. They're narrating um, China and uh, their spaces through the lens of this movie camera. And of course, the splicing, the editing, the movement of the camera through the space of the mission and this medical community and Christian community are all part of this. But then what's interesting is that they take this film, they bring it back to the United States. Um, of course, they screen it for all of these American congregations uh, in the Midwest, on the East Coast, of course, in Rye, New York. And the goal, of course, is to show that they're bridging this divide between the need to evangelize and the need to bring humanitarian and medical aid to China. And of course, part of this is for fundraising. Part of this is to involve the communities that they're in in the United States um, in this uh, international exchange. But then when they are going to go back to China, they then film scenes in the United States using that same camera. And what the Hankies do is that they avoid filming things like big cities and uh, you know huge differences in, in, in American culture and Chinese culture. They film rural areas. They film farmers and uh, uh, rural circuses and their home communities. And they bring that film back to China to screen for their coworkers, for their church, for the Chinese people in that area. 
And they're trying to bridge these two worlds, the worlds of China, the world of the United States uh, during the Great Depression, um, by latching onto similar visual tropes and visual cues that will allow audiences on both sides of the Pacific to essentially see each other in association with each other through the medium of film. So, yeah, that is one of my favorite parts. The, the Rye New York story is one of my favorite uh, stories from the book. And I, you know, one of the things that as I'm sort of realizing we're, we're sitting here and talking and, um, you know, a podcast is, of course, an, you know, an auditory form and we're talking about a visual form. It's a little hard, but I one of the things that I've found really helpful about your work and um, has helped me sort of think through this, um, the relationship between the missionary and, um, you know, the, the potential convert is you know, we, we talk about that a lot. You've sort of mentioned sort of um, imperialism or some of our, one of the main frameworks that we've sort of um, as a field often used to talk about that dynamic. And, you know, historians have been sort of playing with and challenging those ideas for a long time. And one of the things that your discussion of um, cameras does and so the, the way that these, um, these films are being shared and also the ways that they're being created that surprised me is, in terms of even the posture that the photographer stands in. So I'm wondering if you can sort of talk us through for, for listeners who aren't familiar with some of the you know, early 20th century technology of you know, what it would mean for a missionary to be taking these pictures and um, sort of the power dynamics between the photographer and the photographed. Um, if you can sort of talk us through that a little bit because I, I, the point you were just making about you know, what they're choosing to share about American culture um, when they're bringing videos back to China is, I think, maybe speaks to sort of similar dynamics here that it's not about, you know, the photographer is necessarily the sort of powerful one in charge, right? There's more of a um, conversation going on in, in, in some ways, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And this, yeah, and, and this certainly comes back to the question of what it means to have a kind of performance, right? That making an image is part process, technically, and part performance. And uh, to answer your question about what this would have meant for a, a missionary to perhaps take an, a, a still photograph, um, there are these smaller cameras that basically require the missionary or really whoever's taking the, the picture to look down into a viewfinder that then projects this image up to them, uh, allowing them to frame the image and focus. Um, these are largely uh, what we, we would call twin lens reflex cameras that are exceedingly popular during this time period. But what is lost in just looking at the end product, just the photograph, is that if you see the posture the photographer takes in making this image, they have to basically bow toward their subject. They have to curl up in a ball and look down into this viewfinder. And what they're doing, as opposed to you know, pointing a camera at someone like a gun or one of these earlier cameras that is like giant that takes up you know, this, all this space, you've got this missionary curled up in a ball with his little camera bowing toward the person or people or things that she or he is making an image of. And that presents a different kind of relationship physically and performatively um, in relation to uh, people in front of the lens. 
And, you know, it's small things like that. And even the, the kinds of ways that, um, like in, in the Hanky films, um, they're filming a scene and all of, a sudden, some, some, all of a sudden someone steps in and you can see the filmmaker stop the camera and then, you know, they turn the camera back on and they're, you know, the person somewhere else or they're talking to someone else and they're cognizant that um, their presence in the environment is in a way um, disrupting or changing some kind of interaction with them. So they're trying, these missionaries are trying very hard to utilize the technology to present a kind of connection, a conversation, um, as opposed to imposing something on the communities and people that they're photographing. So in many ways, it is very much a conversation that is uh, guided and uh, framed, uh, if you will, by the technologies that they're employing. I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> can you, uh, I mean, so, so you are yourself a photographer um, and, and a very skilled one. I've um, enjoyed looking at the pictures on your website. Um, can you talk us through a little bit about, you know, your methodology? Do you think that having a, this background um, yourself has helped you sort of approach these sources in a new way and tell this story differently? Or um, sort of how do you, uh, how do you frame yourself as a as a as a historian? What, what, what methods do you rely on? Yeah, so uh, these are methods I also talk about in my uh, visualizing East Asia class that I teach at Albion. But I tend to think about the process of making images as really central to how we will, as historians, as readers, as viewers, uh, consider the lives and contexts through which images pass. Um, and I talk about this in, in, in terms of the relationship between subject, maker, and audience in the creation of a photographic or filmic image. Um, and asking these questions of, you know, who are the subjects? What's their relationship to the uh, maker, to the person or people with the imaging technology? And what is the relationship between the maker with the audience uh, interpreting, receiving, circulating these images. And once one thinks about um, images as part of a process and part of these relationships between subject, maker, and audience, you start to see where these images have resonance with historical experience. Now, of course, parts of this require detective work. They require reading against the grain kind of uh, making conjectures about the apparatus that was used or the ways in which um, uh, the people in front of the lens interacted with the, uh, the camera person um, or even how audiences back in the United States received uh, these things or audiences in China. But once you see these relationships and these categories, um, it just makes for such a richer uh, experience in interacting with these materials. And we do this all the time. I mean, uh, a selfie is the epitome of being the subject maker and the audience all in one. Um, <laughs> but we are always interacting with whether you're the subject of an image, you're making an image or you're receiving an image. And um, it's just, it just helps to connect that to the kinds of material that I work with. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about images in this way, how does that help us understand differently what is, um, the relationship between the United States and China in these, you know, really critical decades of the early 20th century. 
Yeah. So I think what it tells us is that a lot of these micro histories exist under kind of under the radar uh, mm -hmm. within the rubric of these broader interactions through diplomacy and religion and trade and conflicts between the US and China and also with regional powers. But a lot of these experiences are truly micro histories. They are this a part of this, these moments, uh, these experiences where people are thinking in terms of images, they're thinking in terms of encounters, they're locally embedded. These missionaries are living for years and years um, in these environments, learning Chinese, uh, translating the culture, both for themselves and uh, their churches, as well as translating American ideas and culture for local people. And when, once you see that cameras and visual imaginations are part of this equation, it enriches the ways in which we might think about US-China relations on the macro level. Um, we see that these images are pulling these threads of history through the ground level up to these larger um, transformations and evolutions uh, on the international stage. And that I, I believe sheds new light on how we might think about encounters between the United States and China, um, and also the role of visual experience in all of these. Yeah, so let's talk, I mean, let me dig into that a little bit deeper here, because you were you were sort of talking about what types of photographs were, were you're working with, right? There are family pictures, there are photos of uh, you know, mission buildings and religious activities, and there's also pictures of, um, you know, warfare and, and, um, and, and violence. So how um, do these different categories of photos get used differently? Do we see, um, do missionaries sort of become the way of sort of narrating ongoing sort of, you know, major um, political events um, and military events that they're living through for foreign audiences? And how, how does that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So part of this is that the missionaries come to China they are embedded in these environments and they bring their cameras, but China evolves around them. Um, Chinese politics develop uh, in terms of um, the rise of nationalism, uh, the rise of Chinese communism. And then uh, in 1937, um, the Japanese, uh, the Japanese military invades China and launches essentially the Second Sino-Japanese War. And these missionaries are then very well placed to become documenters of this conflict. They have the cameras, they have the embeddedness, they have the language, and they're also seen as foreign neutrals, uh, neutral citizens who are not involved um, officially uh, on either side. So they're there and, uh, for example, one of these missionaries, the Reverend John McGee, um, has this 16 millimeter movie camera and he is in the city of Nanjing when the Japanese occupy the city and then produces perhaps the only film footage that we have of the atrocities that the Japanese military um, uh, enacted toward the Chinese civilian population. And McGee takes these, these incredibly detailed and also horrific notes um, to accompany his, his films. And he's shooting all of these real, reels of film documenting brutality casualties, destruction of property, um, Chinese civilians being led away by these Japanese military units for execution. Um, and he goes into the hospital 
that is being staffed by these medical missionaries at the University of Nanjing. And he films um, broken bodies and people who have been, you know, uh, raped and assaulted and attacked in all these ways. And he does this in order to raise awareness about the brutality of war. And what is often lost in this equation is that McGee produced these films and he writes about this. He says, I do not want to stir up a spirit of hatred against the Japanese. It's not the Japanese people's fault. It's the Japanese leadership and the Japanese military who are the ones who are carrying this out. And he uses the film itself as a missionary artifact, but not carrying religious ideas, but rather carrying an anti-war message out to the rest of the world in order to inform, expose, and make aware uh, these other audiences, to other audiences, that these things are happening and we must do everything we can to stop this war. Absolutely, yeah. And you and I were talking um, before we started recording about some of the you know, contemporary resonance of, of that theme. Um, was, of course, this is something that um, you know, sadly is, is sort of timeless thinking about how um, visual culture of, um, you know, the, the control of, of what kinds of images get um, get to broader audiences of, um, of various atrocities. Do you want us to speak a little bit to some of the ways that you see this being mirrored in, in our contemporary moment? Sure. So I've been thinking a lot about this in our present moment uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and the conflict there that there are all these echoes of what's going on in China during the 1930s with the Japanese invasion, um, that these missionaries are, again, thinking about how their visual materials will somehow bring awareness to the brutality and destruction on the ground. They're the ones who are embedded, just like now we see you know, all sorts of people from Ukrainian civilians to international journalists um, on the ground in Ukraine covering these images uh, and, and producing these images of the war, uh, but it's also in opposition to or trying to break through this barrier of propaganda uh, because the missionaries in China know that what they're up against is Japanese military and political propaganda that is basically saying, again, interesting echoes, that we are here to help the Chinese. We are here to essentially um, launch this invasion uh, with real justification of uh, you know, driving out communism, all these things, right? Um, and there's this echo here that uh, I, I just was thinking about as we, I was listening to uh, President Zelensky's address um, right before the invasion, that he was addressing the Russian people directly and saying, Russian state television is not gonna air my message but I want to speak to the Russian people and say, do you want this war? And if not, stop this, you know, make sure this doesn't happen. Uh, and uh, you know, Zelensky has been doing this uh, with you know, multiple groups uh, around the world. And we're seeing here in the 21st century, this echo, this parallel where media on the ground, um, whether it is 16 millimeter film in 1937 China or TikToks, and uh, social media today in 2022 are attempting to break through the barrier of Russian propaganda or in, in 37 Japanese propaganda 
to try to stop this conflict or bring awareness to the injustice of this conflict. So fascinating. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, maybe to, to move us from, from thinking about war <laughs> to uh, thinking about the fun of archive discoveries. Um, bit of a whiplash there maybe, but uh, what, um, what are some of the most fun, uh, so, you know, the things you like, uh, have enjoyed the most in your, um, in your research, some of the surprises you found in the archives, some of the stories that have really stayed with you. Um, what have you, uh, what are some of those gems that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, so one of these, uh, and it shows up in the fourth chapter of my book, um, would be the odyssey of a roll of film, um, the, mm -hmm. the, the life of this roll of film. And it really comes down to, I guess, back to the, the war, uh, an American missionary family uh, who is uh, interned, uh, put under house arrest in North China after the Japanese uh, occupation and also after Pearl Harbor in 1941. So they're under house arrest and they have a movie camera and they essentially film um, a message in a bottle. Um, they have their family members and their friends and their Chinese colleagues um, just gather in the house where they're being held and they film all sorts of daily life, you know, kids doing homework, um, um, people cooking, um, eating together, different missionaries, just waving at the camera, walking around, kids playing, all that. And then they have to figure out where to take this film. And there's only one place in the world in 1942 where Kodachrome, color film, can be published, uh, sorry, developed, my bad. Uh, and that is the Eastman Kodak plant in Rochester, New York. So what do they do? They smuggle the film out. It goes across wartime China, across Japanese lines, Chinese lines, ends up in uh, free China or West China where the nationalists have control. It's loaded on an aircraft, taken across the Himalayas, put on a ship, taken across the Atlantic and ends up at Eastman Kodak uh, where it is processed in this time consuming uh, set of steps and stays there because there's no forwarding address. Now the family um, by sheer coincidence um, is repatriated in 1943 and they go across around the world and they end up back in the United States and of all places, the father, the medical missionary, uh, Fred Scoville, um, lands a job as company physician at Eastman Kodak. And there, <laughs> some person walks over and says, you know, hey, Scoville, is this your film? And the film is reunited with the family. And um, I just had this amazing moment where I was able to look at this film and handle that reel that had traveled thousands of miles across the wartime world. And I was thinking at any point in that process, in this history, it could have disappeared. It could have been lost. And yet um, here I was, uh, you know, having the privilege of working with this family and looking at this film and just seeing these very ordinary image, images that were appearing in rather extraordinary times. That is just amazing. And to think about you know, the stories behind you know, those those pictures that we just um, you know we we you we think of as illustrations sometimes, and you you you're able to bring to life such a such rich stories behind them. It's really remarkable. Um, so what what's next for you, Joe? What are you working on these days? 
Yeah, so uh, two different projects. Uh, one is a co-authored book with Anthony Clark at Whitworth University. And it's a kind of a sequel to my current project uh, where I'll be we'll be focusing uh, specifically on uh, Catholic photography and the evolution of modern China. So that's one project. And my second project uh, is a monograph on uh, media in the Cold War uh, and specifically Cold War Asia. And it's tentatively titled Bamboo Wireless. Uh, mediating the Cold War in Asia and thinking about how what happens to these missionaries after they're expelled from China. And also when we have educators and military personnel um, in places like Taiwan and Thailand um, producing media as part of other kinds of arcs of containment um, in this period. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to hear more. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much for joining us and um, can't wait to see what you come up with next. Well, thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Authors in Conversation, the United States in the World series podcast from Cornell University Press. 